the DEI, or Day Shift, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, is a podcast whose mission is to focus on those issues in medicine, spark discussion, and provide practice-changing data, stories, and useful information to help healthcare practitioners to improve their practices and environments, gain empathy, cultural competency, and humility, and to learn more about emerging DEI concepts. They discuss issues related to gender, race, sexuality, religion, ability, socioeconomics, and so, so much more. There are many professionals responsible for producing their informative and engaging content, and on today's show, we were honored to have Dr. Maggie Cosman, a MedPeds hospitalist and senior producer of the show and co-host, Dr. Brittani Parker, an academic hospitalist, producer, and co-host, Deepti Yachuri, a recent graduate of UCSD undergrad and currently applying to medical school and an assistant producer, and Sarai Martinez, a UCSD undergrad and production assistant. We discuss why it is necessary to create their show and some interesting and disturbing statistics behind the lack of diversity in medicine. We also discuss some of the consequences to our patients of that lack of diversity. And then each member of the day shift goes through a personal experience with the healthcare system that demonstrates an untoward effect of the lack of diversity, and then highlights a positive experience because of the presence of it. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Thank you all so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having us. We're very excited. So tell us about your podcast. Tell us about the the day shift, diversity, equity, and inclusion shift. What is it and why did you find it necessary to create the podcast? So the Day Shift is a podcast that stands for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, the DEI shift. Uh, It's a play on the um, term of the day shift versus the night shift. Um, And the goal of the podcast from its inception has been to shift the way we think and talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the medical field. Um, reframing the problems that arose, quote unquote, overnight um, with the fresh perspective of the day team coming in on the shift um, to address what has come up and and make a plan to progress forward, building on what we've done in the past, what happened previously. So we have worked with a team of some really wonderful leaders who had this idea created our whole team and put us together. And um, we've had such a great time trying to um, produce episodes that are helpful to medical providers, um, primarily in medicine, but also in nursing, pharmacy, et cetera, all of the healthcare-related fields, um, as we all work together to take care of a very diverse patient population in order that we can uh, address a lot of these knowledge gaps that we all have as a result of the way we've been trained. Yeah, Maggie, I think you described that so well. We have about 20 people um, on our team and we're all in different areas. There are, you know, 
pre-clinical students, medical students, residents, and attendings from um, many different states. And um, it's easy to collaborate uh, with uh, the technology that we have. And we all have a a strong interest in furthering um, this initiative of diversity, equity, and inclusion. How many of you all have met in person? Because it seems like your team really reaches across the map pretty far. I know a lot of us, we try to meet each other in person, especially the, the, the San Diego natives. We, we met a little bit across, but most of it's all virtually. Amazing. And I'm certainly, yeah, certainly now people are not traveling cross country to uh, meet each other. Hopefully not. <laughs> so, so uh, everybody loves statistics, right? So let's learn uh, a, a little about the statistics behind where medicine is uh, currently with diversity, equity, and inclusion. Give us some of those startling statistics that are out there. I don't have specific statistics on where we are in medicine. I can tell you just um, on some of the podcasts that we've done, you know, we've we've done a session on underrepresented minorities in medicine and focused on many different populations, but we also the African-American population. And we can tell that compared to the 1960s, we have a lot less African-American men who are going into medical school and into attending ship. So that's kind of startling, especially when you think about, you know, back in the 60s with the civil rights movement. And and we've moved so far beyond that. Wait, the numbers so, are down for African American num- men. The numbers are down. Wow. Yes, that is. And startling. so, whenever you hear a statistic like that, you really have to dig deep and see, you know, what uh, is the underlying issue. Um, and so, uh, we tackle some of those things. Um, we will be piloting an episode on the American Indian Alaska Native population in our season two. In the early 1990s, there were only 30 uh, physicians of American Indian Alaska Native uh, descent who were practicing in the United States, which most people don't know. And so there have been a, there's been a lot of work um, behind the scenes on trying to get more um, people uh, of diverse background into the medical field to mirror the patients and the populations that they take care of. But there's a lot of work to be done. And keep in mind, that's 30 out of anywhere from 800,000 to a million practicing physicians. That's incredible. That's incredible. Um, yeah. Great. So, um, or rather not great. So this is one of the things that your, your podcast is, is hoping to teach us and then uh, inspire a younger generation to, um, to start applying to, sh- you know, showcase some of the talents that, that are out there right now, but also to teach us how the, the current majority can also help facilitate more inc- diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, so what are what are some of the consequences of the lack of diversity, equity, inclusion in medicine? What what happens when you when you don't have representation? Yeah, great question because it has such significant ramifications for our patients, for us as healthcare providers, and for the healthcare system as a whole. And what it whittles down to, unfortunately, in dollars saved um, by the system. So starting with our patients, not having a diverse healthcare workforce leads to poorer outcomes across the board, um, regardless of what the diagnosis is. There's been a lot of different studies um, kind of assessing the misperceptions and the implicit and explicit biases that providers hold about different racial and ethnic groups, and then studies that subsequently show that those racial and ethnic groups are underserved, um, their pain is undertreated, 
they are diagnosed much later on in their course of disease, et cetera. So um, one example is a study that was done in 2016, not something that is in our past, ancient history, really. But there's a study by Hoffman et al. that showed um, when they took a look at the perceptions that white medical students and residents had about Black people, Black patients, um, they found that half of them actually believed that Black people physically had thicker skin than white people, or that their nerve endings were more sensitive or less sensitive than white people, or um, other, you know, other very, to me, shocking things that kind of just blow my mind that we, in this current day and age, somehow from our upbringing or from our training or just from assumptions, stereotypes, implicit biases, or shortcuts that our brains take to process information, um, somehow we end up with these biases that if we actually thought about them would probably shock ourselves. And of course, that means that um, when we hold these biases, we're not going to give appropriate pain regimens to patients of Black descent. We're not going to be assessing how they're perceiving their illness. We're not going to be understanding, you know, why it is that they don't respond to the things that we're doing when we're treating them differently from other racial and ethnic group patients. We know that obviously explicit bias, which is more overt bias that we hold knowledge uh, knowingly than our awareness will lead to these disparities, but implicit bias can affect our judgments and our decisions about patient care, even things that are typically led by strict guidelines. Sometimes our implicit bias still leads us to not follow those guidelines or to see nuance or say something we're doing is more nuanced when it shouldn't be. And then it definitely, there's many studies that shows implicit bias definitely impacts our communication and trust with our patients and therefore their ability to adhere and be engaged with our treatment plan and therefore disparities in health are just worsened over and over again. There's a study that was done in Oakland, actually, in Oakland, California, that looked at how willing Black male patients were to accept preventative care measures like having um, their blood pressure, their BMI measured, and then having diabetes and cholesterol screenings, and then even slightly more invasively having a flu shot. They looked at how willing these patients were to accept those preventative measures um, when they were randomly assigned either a Black physician or a non-Black physician. Um, and before the physician went in to see those patients in this kind of controlled setting, they were given a tablet that had the photo uh, and name of the physician, which again was randomly assigned to be either a Black physician or a non-Black physician, and then um, had the patients select what preventative measures they were willing to receive that day. And then they had the physician actually go in and talk to the patient, counsel them about um, the preventative measures and their decisions. And they found that Black male patients who had a Black physician that went in to actually talk with them actually changed their decision about which preventative measures they were willing to accept after they met and spoke with the physician. So they were more willing to take advantage of these preventative measures after having an interpersonal interaction with a Black physician, whereas that was not found in those patients who had a non-Black physician made their decision after just seeing the image and name on the tablet and then basically confirmed those decisions after speaking with the non-Black physician. So what does that tell us? That tells us that when Black male patients talk with Black doctors about 
their healthcare and about the decisions they're making in long-term planning, they feel a level of rapport and understanding from those physicians. Those physicians are asking more questions about other health problems, as they saw in this study, that they were 10% more likely to talk with their doctors about other health problems beyond these preventative measures. And then those doctors were, what they found was 11% more likely to actually write more notes about those patients and what their circumstances are and what their um, healthcare situation is. And this was especially noticed, this difference was especially noticed with a more invasive test, for example, receiving a vaccine than, you know, just stepping on a scale and having your height taken in order to get your BMI. So, when there is a more diverse healthcare workforce that represents the patients they are taking care of, there's an increased demand for preventative care and therefore a decreased demand for tertiary quaternary care later when there are complications and untreated disease. This study they found showed that there was a reduction in cardiovascular mortality by uh, basically a 19% reduction in the black-white male gap in cardiovascular mortality from um, the extrapolations they've made from this study and the increased um, preventative medicine that these men took advantage of. Yeah, I thank you so much for bringing up that study, Maggie. And I think, you know, it's important to just be aware of because, you know, the the takeaway point, I, I don't want to, that to be that, you know, you have to have a Black physician take care of a Black patient because right. there's just never going to be, you know, that many um, of physicians all across the country. But there are just things to be mindful of, of the perception that patients may have who are of different ethnicity or race when they're coming into the healthcare system because of maybe some past experiences or just in our own history um, of the United States with the Tuskegee experiment. As an educator myself, you know, and I'm, you know, teaching medical students and residents, I just, we talk about these issues, that these are things that your patients may be experiencing. And just to be aware that maybe if a patient seems distrustful, any patient really, maybe delve a little bit more into that and say, let's make a shared medical decision. Ask me questions. I'm here for you. Um, and that goes a really a long way. And and to your, to your point, Maggie, I mean, the unfortunately, a lot of these decisions are economic ones. And you just so showed how it saves, you know, on top of just improving outcomes, it saves money. Right? Like, yeah, absolutely. Oh. There aren't great studies on, um, you know, for each specific disparity, how much money is saved if we address it. It's very hard to isolate the singular change of making a more diverse workforce on the effect of racial ethnic disparities. That'd be really hard to study to do. As if but, we didn't need enough, you know, more reason to do it. There's, you know. Right. Yes. There's, there's that on, t- on top of it. Yeah, absolutely. And there are, you know, there is a the medical expenditure panel survey that was done surveying kind of financial costs over the period of 2002 to 2006 that was, again, sort of a, a simulation, not really a simulation, more of an extrapolation that looked at an estimation of what would happen to costs for the hospital if we did eliminate racial ethnic disparities which would, again, be a, multi-pro- a multi-pronged approach, not just involving diversifying the workforce. But they estimated that $230 billion in direct medical care expenditures would be saved and that over a trillion dollars in indirect costs associated with illness and premature death would be saved. And they have this great quote in that paper that um, I can send you if you want to include on, um, in your show notes. But To your point, it says, we should address health disparities because such inequities are inconsistent with the values of our society and addressing them is the right thing to do. But this analysis shows that social justice can also be cost effective. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, sometimes, sometimes the, you know, often decisions are made based on 
uh, based on that. So, you, you know, giving giving that bottom line uh, on top of the ethical concerns uh, can yeah. help can help move more minds, right? Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's sometimes the ends, you know, it's a means to an end. If you're if you're not going to convince people for other reasons, uh, yeah, uh, hit them hit them in the pocketbook. So <laughs> you you had mentioned implicit bias. So so you you just spoken about how it can influence the patient's decision-making if their caregiver looks like them, right? Mm -hmm. But also you mentioned it it affects the caregiver's decision-making and implicit bias. So there's been a lot of discussion around implicit bias training. So Mm -hmm. I, I apologize, I hadn't put this in the questions that I sent to you beforehand, but I think of implicit bias as being hardwired, right? It's a way that your your mind makes these lightning fast assessments in order to save itself energy because of how we evolved, right? So is there any benefit to implicit bias training? Is there any benefit to being made more aware of the fact that we have these biases? Yeah, you raise a great point because like you were saying and we were kind of discussing implicit biases, these shortcuts that your mind creates based on learned information. It's not intrinsic. It's not like a genetically wired or a neurologically wired um, thing, but they're shortcuts that your brain takes to uh, process information quickly and efficiently. And the more hangry you are, the more sleep deprived (laughs) you are, the more post-call you are, all of these different things will make your implicit bias come out more and make you less likely to check it or realize that it's happening. Um, And often implicit bias is completely contrary to what you consciously believe. So these things come out without us expecting them to. So how would you address this then? Is there any point to trying to do that? And there's actually been a lot of psychology research and sociology research into how do we address this? Is there any utility in working on it? And in fact, there is um, in terms of doing things like implicit bias training. Many of us at this point have heard of the Harvard Implicit Association test, have maybe even taken it once or multiple times and been shocked to see some bias against a particular group of people that we may or may not have anticipated based on our upbringing or our own conscious bias. But there are many different steps in terms of minimizing and managing implicit bias that we can take that have been shown to be effective. That includes becoming aware of the fact that you have biases, not only saying, oh, I guess maybe sometimes I'm not completely fair, but saying no human is immune and we all have implicit biases. And so now let me take steps like the IAT test or other um, types of tests to identify what my biases are, or let me listen to my peers so I can be willing to receive them say, you know, I think maybe a little bit of your implicit bias came out in that interaction there um, and sort of talk it out and be willing to hear that and not just shut down immediately. Other things that are important in terms of addressing and retraining your mind out of implicit bias, because like we said, it's a trained, a learned behavior. You can unlearn it by exposing yourself to the very opposite of the stereotypes that you're learning. Um, Expand your circles of people that you work with, that you are friends with. This is called counter-example exposure and stereotype replacement, um, where you basically label the bias or stereotype that you are finding yourself to be falling into implicitly, and then seek examples that contradict that and look for 
people who break that mold for you. And they're not hard to find. We just assume that people always fit stereotypes, but um, it's very much not a true case. So you can, with repetition, train your mind out of thinking in those automatic implicit bias circles that we fall into. So it is um, not hardwired. It You can, because I'm going to be having someone on the show um, in, a, in a couple of weeks, Jonathan Howard, who wrote a book on cognitive biases. And his mm-hmm. point is that, you know, we all have, not specific to the the topic that we're talking about, but just in in general. Uh, Like if you say the same diagnosis over and over, you're more likely to find that diagnosis again, even in places where it may not exist, right? Mm. Certain cognitive biases. And if you try to not do that, then you tend to overshoot the mark, right? Mm. Like if you tend to come to a diagnosis too quickly and you know that you do that, then you tend to overshoot the market. Now you're working things up for too long, right? But it's it's hard to get it just right. But I think when when we're talking about the, the issues that you are talking about, I, I guess it would be hard to overshoot the mark and mm-hmm. be too, too understanding, too open, too... Right. In, <laughs> Treat people too individually. Exactly. <laughs> that, it doesn't really, doesn't really work for this specific topic. So that, that, right. that, that makes sense. Right. And I, I think it's important what you said, Maggie, about just managing, you know, that implicit bias. And I think, you know, because we, you know, there is no completely fair human. Um, and, you know, we we talk about this in many different ways on our podcast about bias. I mean, we have even an episode titled Hidden in the Data, Understanding Bias and in Informatics. And you really talk about how there, you know, are some barriers to access to technology and how that can disproportionately um, impact different populations. the way that you're building algorithms in your EHR. And so we are always thinking of ways of how we can be more aware of the bias that we have or that we are putting into our healthcare systems that help us take care of patients. Wait, so you're not suggesting that other alerts come up in Epic, are you? Not too many. (laughs) Like an implicit (laughs) bias alert, like that interacts with the, yeah. This you know, that would be a great one over some of the others that we deal <laughs> with on a regular basis. <laughs> but you know, we're not going to be replacing alerts. We're just going to be adding right. to them. <laughs> so I, I think uh, what I'd really like to hear from is each one of you individually about your experiences. So we'll talk about a negative experience that you've had in healthcare as a consequence of the lack of diversity, equity, or inclusion. And then we'll flip it around and talk about a positive experience because of the presence of it. So, uh, Brittani, let's start with you, if that's okay. Let's. Could you talk to us, I know we're getting a little personal here, but about a negative experience that you've had in healthcare, could be as a patient, could be as a practitioner, could be as a trainee, a co- uh, consequences that have happened as a result of a lack of diversity, equity, or inclusion. Sure. Um, so my example um, of a positive, negative and positive kind of go together. So I'm going to tell them at the same time. So when I was a medical student, uh, I did a general surgery rotation and the team was very monochromatic. Everyone kind of looked the same. They all thought the same, practiced the same way. So, you know, in the morning as a medical student, I'm getting there at like 4.30 in the morning, pre-rounding. Uh, we see the patient, we put in orders, we write notes and go to surgery and we don't have any interaction with anyone else, right? And I, I think 
one of the benefits you could say is that the team worked as a single organism. Everyone thought the same and just was very efficient. But I could see that uh, there weren't a lot of other ideas coming in. There wasn't a, a lot of uh, different professionals or also having a say. It was just kind of whatever was dictated by those who were higher up. And it's hard to feel like you can be a part of a team or for me, go into that kind of specialty um, when there doesn't seem to be um, any diversity of ideas or different people. So I am an African-American female. And uh, even though, you know, I definitely you know worked hard i you know fit in and uh, and could function within the team i didn't always felt like i belonged and then turn around this was my fourth year i had a vascular surgery rotation and there were women on the team surgeons and and residents we rounded with a hospitalist who also saw all the patients we rounded with wound care specialist it was just very diverse and so there was always a robust conversation about the patient it took more time but it felt like everyone even though you know they came from different areas and had different uh, backgrounds that everyone was valued and I felt like you know the patients had a better experience because um, there was always someone there that was challenging someone else's opinion um, or, you know, way of, of doing things. And it was very collegial. And so I just really take those two experiences and, and think about how diversity that was really infused in um, the second rotation that I had. Um, it was just a very different feeling. And um, I really think that's what diversity, equity, inclusion is about. And so on our podcast, we talk about many different things that can um, improve um, that aspect of care, patient care that we give. My guess is that rounding might have taken longer, but your census was smaller than it could have been, right? Because with all those diverse opinions, you probably have patients getting discharged sooner than they otherwise would have been. They're getting better faster. Therefore, the census is smaller. So that is an argument for slower rounds right there. <laughs> so, so Maggie, what about you? A, a, a positive experience and a negative experience. and And how can we learn from them? Yeah. So I'll start with the negative experience that happened earlier um, in my training. And perhaps there are fewer people uh, in our medical audience who can identify with this and perhaps not. Maybe this is just my own bias coming out with my experience. But as a trainee, I felt very much as someone who, because of my faith beliefs as a um, Protestant Christian, was very much out of the I was in the out group. I was very much out of the general way of thinking, even if others in my medical training program or clinical environment with um, other specialties or other healthcare um, fields didn't necessarily talk to me about what my beliefs meant. Just the, my, my mere, you know, identification as um, someone, as a person of faith, basically, there were assumptions about what that meant, what my beliefs meant, how that would impact my clinical practice, if I truly believed in science, how could the two be compatible? You know, a lot of underlying biases that came from others. And it made me very much feel unwelcome in my own medical training environment. And even if there was no occasion per se for a conversation about faith to have come up in one of our small group sessions or something like that, I think just the over overwhelming consensus and in many interactions that I had in class and out of class was just painted people of faith in a more negative light as people who were not necessarily 
you know, to be honest, weren't as smart or weren't as science-based or as worthy of being a doctor or a scientist. And so it spoke more to the environment in which I was training and, you know, how I felt, how I was being made to feel by a tone that was being set as sort of the baseline that everyone who's here should believe a certain set of things or should hold a certain set of values. And if you don't, then maybe this is not the place for you, or maybe you're not going to be as good of a doctor as we are, et cetera. And that was never necessarily an intentional thing, but, you know, because there was no allowance for diversity in opinion or thought about specific issues we were discussing or particular medical decisions, or um, even if there was a case scenario of a patient and their faith and how that should or should not be allowed to impact their own healthcare, even if it wasn't an explicit bias against a certain faith, it was definitely an environment of, oh, that's that's silly. That's not okay. Why would you believe that? Or why would you let that impact the patient or your own decisions? So that was definitely a negative experience for me. And we're going to talk, actually, Brittany and I are going to be co-hosting an episode in season two about religious and spiritual diversity in the clinical setting, both in the learning environment and also in the clinical environment, taking care of your patients and how that, um, how patients often want their providers to ask about their uh, faith backgrounds and how it impacts their healthcare. But most of the patients don't get that from their providers. Um, so stay tuned for that episode positive experience that I had more recently is that I was in our general pediatric clinic. I'm seeing patients ranging of all ages. And I had actually on two separate days, two separate young teenage girls who came in with their um, moms. And immediately when they walked in or when they, when I walked into their clinic room, we sort of automatically made eye contact and had this nonverbal report that was immediately built. And the reason is that I am an Egyptian American. I have sort of olive colored skin and dark brown curly hair that's really big and was, I think, wearing it in a ponytail that day so they could see my curls. And I walked into the room and saw that these two separate teenage girls on different days had similar skin tone and had very similar hair to mine. And immediately they just felt a little bit more at ease. And I know this because of the way that our interaction went, the way that they were very open with me in terms of the things that we were talking about, often very uncomfortable things. We ask our teenagers in their heads exam to assess their potential for drug or alcohol use, their sexual habits, things like that in order to ensure they're being healthy. But they were very open with me and and sort of talked to me about everything going on. And at the end of one of these encounters, one of the girl's mom's directly asked me, can we please switch to you to be our primary care pediatrician? Because I think my daughter really identifies with you and feels very comfortable around you. And that was such a big impact for me in terms of having a young woman who looks similar to me, see someone that looks like them in a position, authority and power, but also of someone who would be empathetic to their situation and listen to their health concerns and someone that they could trust. So that um, was definitely a really positive experience with those two patients. And even though I was rotating off of that clinic and couldn't be their primary care provider and we talked about it and we, you know, bemoaned the fact that residents just keep rotating from one thing to another, it was really meaningful for me and impactful to, to see that in real life. 
moments like that really validate all of the hard work that you put in, right? And, and all the adversity that you experienced as as a consequence of the lack of representation. You know, then then you see yeah. the uphill battle that you faced, the meaning in that for for your patients going forward. That's such a special moment. And thank thanks for sharing it. Absolutely. With us on the show. So Deepti, what about you? What about you? What experiences have you had? You right, you're you are Medical. Going to be choosing a medical school soon, yeah. so you're not quite there, but still, you've had a lifetime to interface with the medical establishment, right? So, yeah. give us some either something that you've witnessed as uh, as an observer or something that you've experienced yourself. Sure, listening to Maggie talk about her positive experience really brought me back to my childhood. I was that little girl, a lot of times sitting in that medical room, not knowing what to do, not feeling comfortable. With my physician, even though she was a uh, she was a female, she ma- she didn't do anything to make me uncomfortable. But I just couldn't identify with her. I didn't feel like she understood my problems. And I mean, as a kid, I had just moved to America. I was learning the language. I didn't necessarily wasn't necessarily familiar with everything. And the food that I ate was often different from what the general diet recommended here was. And so it was hard to explain anything. And so. As a kid, I always felt unheard both at school and in the environment that I was in, but also in the medical office. And a lot of times my parents didn't really know how to communicate that as well, because I think something about diversity is that the way different cultures view medicine is often quite different as well. And so my parents didn't necessarily know how to communicate those differences with my physician. But I think that did change gradually as I was growing up. I I ended up moving to a different doctor who was Asian. And so there was a little more familiarity there. And then in terms of a positive experience for me, this was actually my first shadowing experience. Um, I was probably a high schooler during this time and definitely pushed me towards pursuing medicine in the future. She was the doctor that I had uh, shadowed was someone who took care of diabetes patients patients and um, and their treatments. And so the treatment that she had provided to her patients was something that I hadn't experienced before. The effort that she took to understand her community, which was primarily elderly um, Vietnamese patients, and taking the time to understand that their diets, asking them additional questions, just not, you know, the basics um, about their food or whatever, asking them about their usual regimen and how they live at home and what other foods they eat. And so seeing the difference that made in terms of patient outcomes or how comfortable her patients were were, were with her uh, definitely influenced me to pursue medicine and made me feel like, okay, there is there is a lot of change that can happen with diversity and inclusion. Great. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you so much for sharing that. And and Sarai, how about how about you? What uh you're you're an undergrad, but I'm I'm hoping we're all hoping you pursue a medical career. And so what what experiences have either you had yourself or witnessed with the medical establishment where the lack of diversity, equity, inclusion was a problem and on the other side was uh, was a boon, was a positive. The presence, sorry, yeah. the presence was a positive. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, growing up, I, I'm from an unserved community, so I'm from Wilmington, and it's predominantly Hispanic. 
So with underserved communities, we know that there's a lot of chronic diseases that occur. And so growing up in this community, uh, we, didn't, we didn't really have much access to a lot of physicians. And most of the physicians that we did have access to weren't usually Hispanic. So every time like I would go with my grandparents and I was younger to like their doctor's appointments, I would usually have to go and miss school so I can translate in Spanish for them because the physicians in my community didn't speak the language that normally everyone spoke. So apart from that, when I would go to those appointments, the physician I would be attending or the physician I'd be with would sometimes get frustrated to the point where like they couldn't express their, not their opinions, but their findings to my grandparents because like I would be trying my best to explain to them. But there was just that language barrier and like the cultural difference that we couldn't get through just because, you know, the physician didn't know what our records were or like how to get through us. So that's kind of like a negative experience that I had, um, I had been or so had seen. How old were you when that was happening? Uh, <laughs> I was around 10. So I, 10 through 17, I would be going to my, my grandparents' consultations and I'd be having to translate. And, you know, there was this one point where like I went to my, cause my grandmother had experienced a, a stroke. And so I went to her appointment and the doctor, not the doctor, but one of the assistants there had told me, oh, how old are you? Because uh, you'd be like a really great addition to our team. I was like 15 and I was like, you guys, um, you guys are like top notch doctors and you guys don't have someone there to translate to your most of your like Hispanic community or most of your Hispanic patients. So I found that to be a really harsh, you know, um, eyebreaker. That's where I was like, an, yeah, an eyebreaker where I was like, you know, I think I kind of do want to go into medicine because um, there's such a, I never thought of, there was a disparity in having to have, you know, physicians who speak the language of their patients or even look like them. So that was kind of like a, a negative experience that I've had. But to follow up, a positive experience was throughout my high school or like going into undergrad, I participated in this program called the Summer Urban Health Fellowship. And these are physicians from Harbor UCLA that um, they conduct a summer program and they bring awareness towards health disparities in my community or community similar to mine, where they're predominantly Hispanic or predominantly like African-American. And the physicians who participate there are also um, Hispanic, Black, any other culture. And so seeing these, seeing that there were physicians in my community or a certain community similar to mine, um, really brought a positive impact where it's like, you know, there's there's some of us out there, you know, I have some hope. But I think that was a really positive experience seeing that there are programs or there are places that are working on including their diversity in their uh, workplaces or in medicine as well. A very rapidly maturing experience for you. That was, uh, wow, I can't believe you were, you were, you were put in that position so many times. That's Nothing that that a 10, 12, 15 year old should should have on their shoulders, but I'm sure it happens so many times. And yeah. And even if they use the translator phone, even if they have the like use a translator phone and someone else to 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 do it, I'm sure that they're missing a lot of nuance, right? Yeah. In the nonverbal yeah. communication in the difference of you know, cultural norms from one Hispanic community to another. So even if you understand the language, there might be other aspects that you're missing so yeah like apart from that like I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one that's had to do that like apart from that let's talk yeah so like I'm not the only one that's had to do that I had friends who have told me their times or like they actually had to go with their parents instead and translate what's going on and you know we're 
uh, Chicanos, like Mexican American kids, like we know certain language or certain ways to like translate to our parents, but they're not the correct terms to be translating. So there's also that part where like there's some nuances there where like we're trying our best, but I think we need we need this diversity in medicine so that this doesn't happen. Yeah, there's sophisticated principles that you're having to, because you're not just translating verbatim. You're trying to, inter- I mean, you're not just a translator, you're an interpreter, right? You're trying to interpret the ideas in addition to just translating the words. And and, and there's just the complexity of medicine. You know, it, it'd be really hard to do to do service to to, to those needs. So and it's it's all about awareness. I mean, Sarai's um, story, you know, is so important for physicians to understand that, um, you know, a language barrier and we all we all feel a little uncomfortable as physicians, you know, talking to a patient, you know, through an interpreter that's in person or over the interpreter phone. But to just be a little bit more sensitive, to take a little bit more time and to realize that these, um, you know, some of these challenges have a lot of implication beyond just um, the patient's sitting with you uh, or in front of you in that uh, office visit. Right. If they have a negative experience, they're going to communicate that. And that might uh, intimidate some of their family members from seeking care. Uh, There are, it reverberates, but also in the the other direction, right? Because if they recognize you're someone who is taking the time to understand them, that has the humility to know what you don't know. You know, that's something that we talk about on, on my show sometimes is it's not about cultural it's about cultural humility it's about knowing what you don't know absolutely um, and and you know if they if they realize that you have that humility and that interest then that's going to also have positive repercussions yeah i think when a physician tries to know or understand the culture it really brings a happiness to the patient that's what i've seen from my experience through other patients that i've worked with volunteering when the when the physician knows or has some awareness they're more likely to be more open and confident in seeing the physician so we've brought up earlier that you know the, the patient is more likely to be open and more likely to take a recommendation if if the doctor looks like them but that's not always going to happen so in those situations right. where it doesn't you have to have the humility to recognize what you don't know and have the curiosity to to ask the questions and be willing to listen. Right. And cultural humility, you know, practicing empathy, taking the perspective of others is one of the other tools for combating your implicit bias in addition to the counterexample exposure and stereotype replacement we talked about. So again, just reinforcement that although we all have these implicit biases and we're never going to always be able to pair a patient with someone of their same racial ethnic background and probably shouldn't do that, even if we had that opportunity to do that, there are still steps that we are all responsible to take regardless of whether we're in a race concordant or race discordant relationship with our patient. So same background or different background. And I think that's an excellent way to wrap up the show. So where can we find the Day Shift podcast? Where can we find you online? And where can we download episodes? We can be found um, on Twitter and, and then also um, on Instagram at The Day Shift. And uh, anyone is welcome to email us at www or at, at The Day Shift uh, or The Day Shift at gmail.com. And you can take a look at our website as well, which is www.thedayshift.com. We have our episodes linked there. You can also find our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Brittani Parker, Maggie Cosman, Deepti Yachuri, and Sarai Martinez, thank you guys so much for your time. This has been a great episode. 
Thank you. Thank yeah. you for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.